Welcome to the Coriolis Effect, Season 2, Episode 2. There is only one salvation, and only nine ways that will lead you there. I'm Matthew. And I'm Dave. And in a packed programme today, we are going to be talking about uh, the Ennies and RPG A Day coming up in the world of gaming, plus a few other bits and bobs. Matthew, you are going to talk to us about the mystery of the Church of the Icons. And I think we've got quite a lot Indeed to talk about there. That sounds really interesting. Um, and am I right in thinking that you've got your first adventure report from your campaign that you started? The Al-Mudakir campaign. Yes. yes Al-Mudakir. Okay, that's how that's pronounced, is it? Right, okay. I, I, uh, well... I think so. <laughs> you know <laughs> okay. me in Arabic. Uh, uh, yes, so... it means reliquary in uh, in 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 Arabic. Arabic. Or uh, I think it means a saving place. Actually, in literal translation. Ah, but um, excellent. Well, but I, yeah, I'm... we've done a couple of sessions of that, so uh, um, I can tell you all about how they went. I'm looking forward to hearing about that because that'll be uh, really interesting to sort of compare and contrast with Spectre Corsair. And we do have a Corsair update to come at the at the top of the show. Um, but bet- but after your update and before mine, we have me talking a little bit about Nakatra, having had a uh-huh. le- a Legion discussion discussion last time. Uh, I thought, well, I've got Legion Nakatra in my game, so I want to talk a bit about that. So I shall uh, I shall say something about that later on. And that's our that packed program great. for today, I think. So there's plenty to talk about, as usual. Uh, shall we leap shall straight we get stuck into, into the, the world of gaming? Yeah, the Ennies. So they've recently announced the nominations for the Ennie Awards this year. Um, have you had a chance to look through them at all, Matt? I have indeed. Indeed, I have cast my vote in many of the ah, categories. Okay, excellent. Um, and So, the, of course, the disappointing thing this year... After after Tales from the Loop pretty much swept the board last year, yeah, is we we haven't got much from Freel again. In fact, we haven't got anything from Freel again nominated for any's this year. I guess next year we'll be sweeping the board again with well with uh, the emissary lost campaign and um, and uh, Forbidden, Forbidden Lands, Land. yeah. Um, but uh, this year, all you can vote for for Freel again is fan favorite publisher, and obviously I have. They were <laughs> number one on my list. Excellent. Um, but there are some other things that we've talked about on this program, and some other people as well that uh, deserve our vote. And did you spot uh, in the in the best art cover category, Simba Room? Uh, I hadn't. No, I've, I've looked through it briefly, but I've just got it here now. Okay, so that's our friend Martin Grip being nominated, I take Indeed it. Indeed it is. Excellent. And rightly so, so um, too. I mean, that, you know, I mean, there is, um, uh, where are we? Here's Simbarum Carvosti, the Witchhammer, Martin Grip. Yes, well, I mean, his artwork is, as we said before, phenomenal. Um, and that's not to downplay the artwork of the other the other nominees, which I'm sure, uh, again, is is equally talented. But um, I'm sure I, uh, in Martin, terms of covers, uh, the, the beauty of um, the beauty of the Ennies is, of course, you can nominate or you, you can vote for every single uh, person uh, or um, uh, game company or whatever in the category. You just have to put them in an order. So, um, yes, you know, I definitely put um, Martin Grips 
Carvosti cover as my number one, but I put the cover to Harlem Unbound as uh, my number two. Very different mm. style, but it looks gorgeous. Uh, I haven't seen so that one. I voted no. for that one. Excellent. Um, yeah, it's a, it's 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 kind of what it, it's it's called a Cthulhu in Harlem. So um, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, given that uh, blokey boy who wrote Call of Cthulhu, what's his name? H.P. Um, Lovecraft. Got out my head. H.P. Lovecraft is Bloke, a bit of a famous Blo- Blokey boy. You're calling H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft blokey boy. I mean, come on. Oh, dear, okay. dear. Well, I could have called him that famous racist, H.P. Lovecraft. but um... <laughs> Yeah, we can't judge people yeah. from early eras by our current better standards. No, we can't. We so, can't. Uh... But there weren't very many black characters in any of his stories. And Harlem Unbound is a take on Cthulhu that is has got a lot of African Americans in it. So yeah. it, it and it's and it looks a really good adventure as well. So um yeah, so, okay. yeah and as I said, a lovely cover, which uh I didn't expect to talk about it quite as much as we have, but um but <laughs> yeah, you, you can vote for both of those. It's a matter of the order of your voting that will um will help things a lot. Yeah. So yeah, what else right. did you spot in the list? Um well I was interested to see Delta Green get in there. I mean I yeah. we had a little dabble with that a little while ago and um uh, yeah, I mean, great to see how it, how it's turned out. Um, I I wasn't personally entirely convinced by the yeah, kind of the almost the the need to move the Cthulhu genre on in that direction. But obviously, they've done well. They've got quite a lot of nominations. I see for a number of different things. So good luck to them. Um, the other thing I was quite pleased to see in there because I've been playing a bit of it was um, Modifius's Star Trek Adventures. And I know it's received yeah. a lot of publicity, and they've done an awful lot of good work about uh, promoting it and getting it getting it out there. Um, but I've 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 really really enjoyed playing it, and um, it's I mean a couple of a couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons why I've I've been so pleased that I've enjoyed it so much was from my original look at the rules back in the day, and I mentioned it on this podcast, I was a bit concerned about certain things that might make it feel less Star Trek-y. Uh, things like not mm. being able to lock phasers and that kind of thing. Uh, I can report, and I think I did report a while ago, that that hasn't been a problem. And it's 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 been really good. The group we've got is great. My brother's Tony is running it. And uh, it, the last couple of scenarios have just had opportunities to do Really, really thing things that really, really feel Star Trek-y. If the game feels like you're in a Star Trek universe, so that, and there's a couple of yeah. couple of examples in, in in a scenario a couple of a couple of games ago, we went down onto a planet tracking down a signal, and there was a semi-intelligent species of sort of panda things there, and obviously Prime Directive we didn't want them to see us, didn't want you know any of that to happen, and we were almost spotted by a couple of them, but. My cunning plan to deal with it was um, we had them beamed up, but then held in the beam until we'd finished what we were doing. Oh. And then we rematerialized them. Um, so I'm guessing that in their world, no time would have elapsed because they would have been, you know, as particles in the in the transporter beam. And that worked really well. And that was, again, it's a kind of, uh, you know, using your trekkiness. And I am becoming a bit trekky. I'm hating to say it, actually. <laughs> um, uh, just played out really well. And then the, the last scenario we had, um, we were we had some of our crew taken captive on board a ship 
um, stuck in the middle of the Shackleton Expanse, which is uh, unexplored space. And yes, it's, it's the it's the area of the living campaign, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. relatively near Romulan space as well. And these are humans who who were had been fleeing the Romulans, and um, they then wanted us to fix their ship for them, but not pry too closely on what their cargo was. And it turned out the cargo was Romulan weapons, entirely illegal. And the way we managed to resolve it was by beaming their cargo out of their ship and taking it on board the Excelsior, which is which is our ship. And again, the mm. scenario just felt really Star Trek-y. It was really good. So I'm delighted to see Star Trek Adventures on there. Um, I'm really enjoying the game and good luck to them. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's on there in a couple of places. Um, best rules and... Best- you know, I mean, yes. we've discussed this before, so I won't bore our listeners, but whereas I don't think the 2D20 <laughs> rules work at all well for Conan, I think they work really well for Star Trek and for that sort of cooperation mode yes. uh, of, you know, the the Star Trek thing does. So, in fact, you can kind of lock phases. There might not be a lock phases action, but, you know, if you get momentum on on some other role you've done, you can kind of go, and phases are locked. And pass that momentum on to the guy that's going to be doing the shooting or whatever. Yeah, I think um, there's there's very much a thing in in Star Trek of just making it sound like Star Trek. So I think there's nothing to stop me as a player and Tony as a GM just introducing a, a moment where we say locking phases, and he says make a roll. Yeah, and then yes, phases are locked. You know, uh, so there's nothing to stop us doing that uh, at all. But I've really enjoyed it, and yeah. I've been watching um, more of Star Trek Next Generation. I'm on season five now. Uh, Excellent. So you're heading into the slightly crappy episodes. Well, so you said. Season five is still good, and most of season six is pretty good. Yeah, season seven's a killer. The beginning of season five, I've watched about five or six episodes. They've all been uniformly excellent. I've been very impressed with season five. So excellent. uh, So the quality's been getting better rather than worse for me so far. But um, yeah, well, I think there's a thing about you know that crew and the you know still very much kind of bottle episodes really they're just beginning to start doing a bit of sort of arc style stuff but Mm. the way the writers are building the characters up over time even if most of the stories most of the narratives kind of reset the button you know they have a reset button at the end of the episode uh, the characters themselves i think develop really well yeah there is an interesting thing actually about um when you're watching the episodes back to back uh, somebody might have done something really weird or, or been taken over by some entity and done something funny in, in a previous episode. And then the very next episode, they're the first character you see on screen. And it's like, well, hang on. Mm. They've just come out of that and now you've forgotten about it entirely? Uh, yes. Whereas actually the reality is that the, the following episode could have been days or weeks later. Um, yes. It's just for you. Uh, That's kind of what I mean by the, yeah. the reset button. You know, They're yeah. still there in the world of American syndication where they can't be guaranteed that the episodes are ever repeated in the right order. Um, no, which I think that's isn't true. So much of a problem now. No, but also I noticed Star Trek adventures, collector's edition core rulebook, which you and I both have is the product of the year and uh, uh-huh. best production values. Yeah. Excellent. It's so a, good a good, it is a good book. Yeah. It is a good book. Um, I do, I do wonder a little bit, whether there's almost too many rules in Star It's a bit like L5R, 
where we often find ourselves having to flick, because we don't play very often, having to flick through and check yeah. rules quite often, quite a lot. Because there's, you know, there's a depth of rule that you know, perhaps lends itself less well to making a quick house ruling on the moment. Yes. Um, but it'll get better as we understand the rules better and as we work out what our talents and our skills and stuff do more effectively. But yeah, as I said, and I think, I'm, lo- you know, I'm loving Hellfire the game. Guy, it's, it's you guys that forget the rules most of the time. It's me that remembers them. <laughs> Unlike the name of uh, famous horror Unlike the authors. name of that bloke who wrote <laughs> Blokey Boy. Tentacle yes. monster thing. <laughs> yes, indeed, um, indeed. Yeah, so I, I'm not. I, 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 the beauty of voting is you don't have to make all your decisions in one go. They use cookies to ensure there isn't any voting fraud or something. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you can go back to the website, and it's already registered the votes you voted for. So I haven't voted for everything yet, but I'm I'm working my way through. Yeah. Um, yes, I need quick to get shout out for it. best. Best free product. I know I'm going to be voting for RuneQuest Quick Start Rules and Adventure for my number one. Because um, I played that last year at um, Free RPG Day. and Well, I ran it and it was great. Oh, Free RPG Day. Let's quickly mention you didn't get to go to any friendly local gaming store for Free RPG Day, did you? No, no, no. I'm not even sure no, where my, my closest friendly gaming score is actually nowadays. Ah, well, I might have, I might be able to help you there, but we'll talk about that after we've recorded. Um, <laughs> I picked up a bunch of stuff because actually our free RPG day at my local friendly gaming store wasn't a massive success. Oh, no. Uh, it, I was running a game in the afternoon and only about three people turned up for the afternoon session. I think a lot more turned up in the morning. Uh, but obviously with only three players, um, we cancelled my game and I joined a guy who was running Dragon Age and uh, you see we, see we what what it is what, what what it is Matt is that because we've um, been doing this podcast now for a little while they realize that you're not the best GM so uh, yeah they, so they actually, if it had been me we'd been we'd have been beating them off with a yeah you'd have been inundated but... I'm sure <laughs> exactly so anyway I picked up a bunch of uh, swag obviously that being part of the the fun and of course since <laughs> Nobody turned up in the afternoon. There was quite a lot of swag left over. So I probably came away <laughs> um, with uh, more than my fair share. Um, my least favourite bit of swag is an introduction to a game called Overlight that has a scenario in it, but doesn't actually have any rules. So, um, yeah. you know, you're going to have to wait for the proper game to come out and then buy it before you can. <laughs> okay. It. That didn't sell itself to me. Slightly. Uh, yeah, it's not the best way talk- to stick out some free products, is it really? Free products no. that you can't use until you've bought the product. <laughs> uh, there yeah. was a lovely sort of starter set for Dungeon Grawl Classics, which is an old school um, game, uh, which is actually great fun. Um, by coincidence, my uh, gaming store group had, we, we'd run a, uh, an adventure of that, and you start off with about four or five characters, and they all die because they've all got like one or two hit points. Okay. And at the end of the adventure, anybody that survived becomes your first level character. Yeah. Um, but that was hilarious. Sounds fun. Unknown Armies, Maria in three parts, which is what I was going to ring. I talked about that last episode, so I won't talk about that. But yep. the best yep. bit of swag comes from Pelgrane Press. And it's two adventures. A Cthulhu confidential adventure called A Cable's Length from Shore. And that's set in London. 
<laughs> and a Fall of Delta Green adventure. I don't, have we talked about Fall of Delta Green? I don't think we have. No, 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 I so, don't think so. So a Fall of Delta Green is Delta Green set in the 60s with the rules from, or the gumshoe rules from uh, okay. um, Knights Black Agents and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, there's two great adventures there and rules for both of them in a lovely, perfect bound um, hardcover with, not hardcover, I mean uh, softcover with 88 pages for free. That would cost you 20 quid if you were buying it on any other day of the year. Mm. Um, so worth looking at PDFs of that. And finally, the hardcover I've got is um, is um, Eldrick Cock, which is uh, lots of very masculine uh, magical spells for old school role playing games, but particularly for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Ah. So, bunch of swag there. Swag City, that was. Uh, yeah, and we're coming up to uh, RPG a day. We are. Have I you haven't have they, announced have, the questions yet? I was going to say, because I mean, last year we it came upon us a bit suddenly. Or certainly came upon me a bit suddenly, so I I didn't get much of a chance to do anything about it. But we had a whizzy idea, didn't we, for this year? We did. Well, we you did. I'll give you credit for this one. It was your idea. Okay. Uh, you, you might explain. be the best GM, but I have all the best ideas. I think we can agree <laughs> on that. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think we should do it. It, it. I'm hoping the questions are going to come out quite soon and uh, give us time around your holiday because you're going off shortly, aren't you? I'm off for a week or next week. So uh, I'm back on yeah. the 23rd. When so does we'll it have to carefully coordinate diaries, but it, I think it would be good fun if we did a short podcast every single day of August where you and I discuss our answers to the questions from RPG A Day. Yep, and we'll have Let's to keep them short. Let's see if we can make that happen. The podcast won't be an hour yeah. long. <laughs> no, no. I, They'll have to be I, I, five or ten minutes 30 long. hours of recording between now and the beginning of August <laughs> might might be tough. I think even um, we might run out of things to say after 30 hours. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd certainly so run they, out of listeners be... by 30 hours, that's for sure. There'll probably be little, uh, shall we call them minisodes, five or ten minutes long. But we'll try and get one out every single day of the month. Um, yeah, great To keep idea. your podcatcher happy. <laughs> yeah. um, have you got any more gaming news you want to talk about in World of Gaming? No, nothing that can't wait to next time. Um, I've got lots of Kickstarter stuff that is uh, pledge managed, so it's on its way, um, but hasn't arrived yet, so we can talk about that another time. Uh, so no, I think we should probably... Move on to talk about the Church of the Icons, don't you? Yeah. Um, so, uh, again, so often when you or, well, when we set each other this sort of do your homework on one of the factions, I think we always come away surprised by the depth. The amount of, of stuff uh, we come detail. up with. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very true for this one. And particularly, there's a mystery. So I called this essay, The Mystery of the Church of the Icons. I am guilty of taking the Church of the Icons for granted. And I think that is because, for most of us, our experience of churches is of something that has always been there, or at least has been around for centuries. Whether or not you go to church, the building itself is a landmark in your life, and similarly, the traditions of whatever faith you are, or choose not to be, have become landmarks in our annual calendars. 
Our churches have become part of the background of our culture, something we take for granted. But there is a perplexing mystery at the heart of the Church of the Icons. The Church of the Icons is young. Or rather, both old and new. The religion, or folklore, has been around for centuries, but the Church, with its trans-horizon structure, is, and I quote, the horizon's youngest faction. Its rise to prominence is extraordinary. New international churches do exist in our world. For example, the Church of Scientology, created by science fiction writer L. Ron Hubbard, is about as old as the Church of Icons. It's a global organisation, yes, but it doesn't have the reach and acceptance that the Icon Church appears to have achieved. What is the secret to their success? The core book tells us that the Church of the Icons has, again I quote, grown strong through collecting, canonising and institutionalising the wide, sprawling faith that has existed in the horizon for centuries. So, rather than making up a pantheon of Thetans like Elron, the Church of the Icons appears to be more like the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i's philosophy is one of unity. Their belief is that every prophet, every religion, reveals a different aspect of the truth of God. Similarly, the Church of the Icons seek out and embrace local variations of faith, progressively revealing the truth of the Icons. But the Baha'i faith has not achieved the level of acceptance and authority that the Icon Church seems to have managed. Indeed, its adherents are persecuted in the Middle East, where it was founded by an Iranian 125 years ago. How has the Church not only become accepted, but risen to prominence so smoothly and so completely? Perhaps the answer lies in its structure. The icon faith is not a cult of personality. There is no Elron or Bab. It's a federation. The matriarch and patriarch appear to have little power, except as notional figureheads. There are two of them anyway, so neither one is the leader. The Seekers, an ancient cult which may have had something to do with the founding of the church, have been marginalised. They are, I quote again, looked upon as wise ascetics and prophets, rather than actual figures of power within the faction. So, the Church of the Icon seems less like, say, the Catholic Church under the Pope, and more like the International Anglican Communion, of which the Archbishop of Canterbury is more a figurehead than leader. I therefore imagine that the teachings of the Church can be very different in different systems, just as the philosophies of the Episcopal Church in the United States regarding, for example, homosexuality, are very different from those of their Anglican brethren in Africa. So, how does anything get decided? How does the Church make any decisions, if not by papal bull or fatwa? I think every two or three cycles a great synod is held, with representatives of the Church from all corners of the horizon attending. Much discussion is had, many topics are debated, and occasionally, very occasionally, something is agreed. Between such synods, weighty topics might be the subject of an ecumenical assembly, which would present its findings at the next synod. 
Thus it was that the nine sacred rites were only but in writing in Coriolis Cycle 49, only a couple of decades ago in game canon. Before that, I imagine, that doctrine which denies the duality of the icons and that evil exists not in the icons but within humanity was agreed in a similar manner, with much muttering around the periphery. Indeed, I think that despite one of the nine sacred rites being that, and I quote, once a year, during the Cyclade, a believer should openly declare her faith by reciting the creed together with others in a temple, that creed itself might still be in flux. The creed isn't defined anywhere in the core book after all, and we know very little about it, other than that icons are only good doctrine. The core book does mention two schisms, which I think are not really schisms at all, but rather issues upon which a synod has not yet agreed a wording for the creed. So, right now, the creed does not mention humanites at all, but perhaps the first cyclade, after the Oikumeni as Najim assembly has reported to the synod, the creed will include a line about whether humanites have a soul, or are simply biological automata, or animals. Talking of souls, I am amazed that the creed is not yet clear on what happens to your soul after you die. The Church of the Icons assures us that our souls do not become monsters trapped in the dark between the stars, for which, personally, I am grateful, but stubbornly refuses to confirm whether you are rewarded with an afterlife in an al paradise, or, as the Seekers believe, become one with the Icons in the Eternal Aum. The fact that there appears to be no ecumenical agreement upon this important matter surely confirms that the seekers are indeed marginalised and are not the power behind the church, but conversely, this fudging of the issue of the afterlife also raises questions about the rapid growth and success of the church. In our world, the one key selling point for religions is the promise of an afterlife, be that in heaven, Valhalla, or a more successful reincarnation, if you follow the teachings of the Church. And, of course, the many alternative hells or unfortunate reincarnations for those that don't follow the path. If the Church of the Icons can't define how your soul is rewarded, how come so many people have accepted the Church and the Creed into their lives? Yeah, as you said a minute ago, Matt, uh, it's always um, enlightening when we one of us looks into these things in greater detail. Now, I've had the Church of the Icons, um, uh, well, at least as a player in my games, maybe not so much as a, a GM. But yeah, I mean, I hadn't even really grasped so much about how young the church is and about uh, the, like you say, the, the, the fact that it's not a cult of personality. It's, uh, you know, it's something much, much different to that. Um, I, I can't get over the fact that every time um, you or anybody mentions L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, I just get this flash of an image of John Travolta from Battlefield Earth in my head, which is quite, quite <laughs> well, a difficult You shouldn't one. have watched it. You quite just shouldn't one. have watched it. Well, I've read it. I haven't watched, I don't think I've ever watched the film, but you can't not have seen John Travolta Looking like I don't know, like a uh, uh, like a reject from an audition for a predator movie. 
Uh, uh, <laughs> but um, he looks like an absolute thetan. <laughs> an absolute what? Thetan. That's what they're called, aren't they? Those aliens. Are they? I don't know. I thought they were called cyclones. Uh, I believe they are. Yeah. Weren't they called cyclones? Um, well, look, I'm not. I'm That's not even going to go there. So, anyway, <clears throat> um, yes. So, yeah, I hadn't grasped. Yes. So one, what we've how, got is this: how, how young, how young they are, how young it is as an institution. How young and how successful. You know, this mm. this is the thing that impresses me. This is, if you like, the established church of the whole horizon. And they've managed it in less than seven decades. Mm. Um, well, I mean, it's like, as you say now, using Scientology as your, as your uh, you know, real life um, analogy. It's um, most people who look upon Scientology uh, look on it as a joke. Uh, obviously, there are people who believe it, but still, you know, it's seen as a joke widely in normal circles. And in the horizon, the Church of the Icons obviously isn't seen as a joke. Yeah, I mean, it's got one advantage over Scientology in that, as we've discussed before, we know the icons exist because we pray to them and things work out for the best. That's true. Yeah, that's uh, very true. So, so all the Church is doing is... Uh, as they say, sort of regulating existing belief. But the fact that they've come in, which is why I, I feel perhaps a better analogy is the Baha'i faith, because, you know, all, all they do is they say, well, yeah, you Muslims, you're right. And you Christians, you're right as well. And we can all get along because, you know, what we're doing, what you guys have done so far is show us more and more of the truth of, of God. Uh, and that's kind of more like what... Um, what the church of the icons is doing but mm. you know again they're they're twice as old as scientology and they haven't made any headway i mean you know there's plenty of baha'i people uh believers around the world but they haven't risen to prominence in the way that it appears that the church of the icons has yeah. so i think there must be getting help from somewhere <laughs> from what <clears throat> uh alarms temple are you suggesting well, you know, after your piece on Alarm's Temple, I did wonder because, um, you know, in a way you can you could say that the Church of the Icons was possibly formed in a bid by the first come to preserve some sort of first come identity from the sudden rush of Zenithian ideas that were coming as, as the horizon was reunified by the by the Zenithians. Mm. So these guys, you know, it's a protective thing. We need we need an organisation as um as together and and as holistic as things like the foundation and uh, that's a, uh I mean, the others that's a good that's but, a good point because perhaps we're yeah, perhaps uh you know i've always looked at uh, all, all the all the factions but particularly on the first come side uh you know as individual separate factions perhaps you're right in suggesting that the church of the icons was the first comes attempt to wrap, uh, you know, a uh, a common ideology for every single first come person, you know, regardless yeah. of regardless of your other faction loyalties, uh, and it looks from that sense that they've probably failed if that was the objective, because they haven't done that. You know, the Zelosians are still Zelosians, and uh, um, you know, Draconites are still Draconites. 
But yeah, and of course the Zelosians are interesting in themselves because they've probably got an older system of belief than the Church of the Icons has. You know, they have stayed true to what they were believing on Zalos for centuries. The Church of the Icons have come a little bit like colonists to every single system and gone, oh yeah, no, what you're doing here is basically right, but you know, let's modify your appreciation of the icons into one that conforms with what we're trying to get everybody else to believe. Mm. Uh, the Zelosians aren't going to be persuaded by any of that nonsense. And so when they, you know, when they uh, get all arrogant about whether or not they believe whether any of the emissaries represent, um, sorry, emissaries represent any of the icons, then they know that they're right. Whereas actually, I think the Church of the Icons are going to have to have a bit of a discussion set up, maybe an ecumenical um, uh, uh, conference and a, and a, and a, and a, and a synod before yeah. they make any decision about whether uh, the emissaries are telling the truth or not. Mm. I think your idea... Yeah, I think your idea of the synod is really good. I'll come back to that in a moment. But I think the, the, the first thing that I just want to just throw in at this moment is, so do you think then, are you suggesting that there was some greater benevolent or malevolent purpose behind the setting up of the Church of the Icons in the first place, which is still deep at the heart of the Church of the Icons is still something that they're trying to achieve or are they just kind of you know a bit more like you would think you know modern Christianity is is just putting itself out there and trying to get people to come to it rather than having a almost missionary we've got to make people come to it approach well there's a little um, sort of uh, a hint at the mission obviously they've, they've made the mission part of the creed and they've even named a character um, whose name I can't remember. Give me a moment. I've got it in my notes here. Um, <laughs> you're, you're not doing well Sharif on remembering Afta. stuff today, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going senile in my old age. Your, so your Sharif Aftar is, is a named character. Sorry? My <laughs> name is Matthew. Thank your you. name is Matthew, by the way, just in case. Yeah. Sorry, um, carry on. <clears throat> uh, so, coming back to Sharif Aftar, <laughs> you know... There's only one mention of him in the whole core book, but the fact that a character is named at all, I think, is interesting. He runs the mission organisation within the church, and uh, they sort of organise this idea that believers, if you're a member of the church, you should leave your home at least once in your lifetime, travel the horizon for one segment, and spread the faith. Now, I think that isn't so much... I mean, I think that's proselytising... But it's also, I think, working with icon believers in remoter parts, I guess ever remoter parts of the horizon, and persuading them that the icons which they are worshipping or um, sacrificing to or whatever are the same icons that the church represents. But maybe some of their practices should change. Maybe the sacrificing to the icons isn't a thing you should be doing anymore. And also <laughs> getting this idea that the icons are only good and the evil is within uh, inhumanity itself and the dark within the stars, which is you know part of the creed that they've, they've identified. So, yeah, I think there is a mission <laughs> there. Is it a, you know, you asked uh, that question by saying, is it a, uh, an essentially good mission or is there an ulterior purpose? And I think it probably is essentially good. But I'm not sure I trust the seekers. 
So mm. maybe the seekers, if the seekers are behind it all, although they appear to have distanced themselves from from the mission, uh, from the church itself, uh, you know, it's interesting to know that an ex-seeker represents the church on the council, uh, Wasima Um. Uh, if they are cleverly playing the long game, then are they have they actually got an ulterior motive? Are they even maybe I thought about this if the church only started sixty years ago and the Nazarene sacrifice was wiped out sixty years ago, is there within the church itself some remnant of the Nazarene sacrifice yeah, is, that, is is that is that timing just a coincidence or uh... Or, or otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Or I think it's also is it interesting. that, you know, they said, you know, the Nazarene sacrifice is wrong, but we need an organisation that can police that. We need to create the church to, to make sure the beliefs of the Nazarene sacrifice don't raise their head across the horizon uh-huh. one more time. But actually they're hiding in plain sight, almost. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other option could be that... Um, we don't have to ascribe uh, negative or evil or self-serving motivations to everybody in the game. There could be people in the Third Horizon who are actually just wanting to spread the word and make everyone's lives slightly better by getting them to join uh, join the the ideology of the Church of the Icons, not to any greater oh, exactly. purpose other than to make individual people a little bit happier. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, so we yeah, don't I have that could well be uh, yeah. the, the sole reason for the existence of the church. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's a it's an it's a fascinating idea. Um, I do also like your uh, your your talking about the general synod idea. Um, it always, again, whenever I hear those two words together, it always brings up the um, general Nottlana synod's life of life Christ. of Christ from the not long ago used. When uh, three or more gather together, then they shall perform the parrot sketch. Uh, I mean, that's just so funny. He's like, yeah, even even the lead character, you know, you know this, this Jesus Christ blokes, the same initials as our Lord John Cleese. Same initials. <laughs> uh, anyway, he was Doug... born in Torbay, not Torquay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, the final, the final just scene at of the, the movie. Same time. This Jesus Christ bloke is just whipping thousands of Spanish waiters around the ear. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, brilliant stuff. Anyway, sorry, listeners, for a digression that yes. might not mean anything to many, especially of you. listeners that don't know not nine o'clock news. Yeah, yeah or who, who aren't as old as we are. Anyway, um, but the idea that they're you know they are they're now going to be discussing the schisms you know that you that you you highlight the you know the, the one about human humanites are they you know are they human are they you know what are they uh, do they the have other... souls or not yeah and then the other the I mean obviously part... um you're talking later on about the neck. Nakatra, they don't yep. have souls, obviously. They're According just to uh, the Church of the Icons, but as it uh, stands at the moment, I, you know, you, you could say a Church of the Icon priest and a Nakatra uh, who says he has a soul and the priest says he hasn't. The only way to find out who's right is they have a fight, and let's see, <laughs> let's see who wins. <laughs> uh, that seems fair. I think that would prove the the priest's point, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe. A maybe. creature with a soul would work it out through dialogue and discussion <laughs> and empathy. But, uh, anyway. uh, but yeah, so so I don't think those are schisms. I think schism is almost the wrong word because it's not yeah. like uh, the church has come together long enough to be splitting. 
to fight I think this over is, it. Yeah. What, yeah. what we're seeing is we're bringing together various different beliefs and we're having a bit of a discussion about what's going to be in the creed or not. And in fact, I wanted to mention um, uh, that there's a game that a mate of mine invented many years ago and was published by Chaosium 20-odd years ago called Credo, which is about the early church, the early Christian church, coming together and sort of working out what the creed should be. And um, it's, it's an amazingly fun game where okay. you, you try and gather enough followers so that you can influence the discussions. And then at some point you, you make the creed, you decide whether the God is the son or whether, and not, not I mean, um, the father, the son and the Holy Ghost, although that is the part of the creed that eventually was said, but you can actually have soul, our son as God, if you choose. Um, and you've got enough worshippers. Um, and that, uh, that's coming out for uh, a Kickstarter later in the year as well. Okay. So I was thinking maybe Credo. we should adapt it for to help the uh, uh, to help us work out what the Church of the Icons actually believes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's an option. Yep. Yeah, cool. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting about about the discussion around the afterlife. Uh, yeah. And again, it just uh, another moment where. By the way you said afterlife in your in your piece, it just reminded me of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when uh, <laughs> they end up at the uh, restaurant at the end of the universe. Indeed. And Ford, Ford Prefect says, this isn't the afterlife then. And the, the, the hmm. Major D goes, afterlife, sir? No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm doing lots of digressions today. Um, yeah, well, uh, obviously everything I've written reminds you of a comedy show, but yeah, I think that's <laughs> yeah. a fundamental point. How can you have a religion without some sort of promise for what happens when you die? Without some sort of How can promise you have a of reward religion, or promise of punishment. Yeah. 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 Uh, but just before we go, there's another thing. You know, it seems every time I look at this, I, I, I start to see in my head the sort of character I want to play. And I just wanted to mention something that I'm not sure is a typo or something yeah. special. Um, if you look through the artist um, concept... Under the poet subconcept, it says, your words are your art and they stir strong emotions in your audience. You might be a psalter serving the church of the icon. Well, a psalter is a book of psalms. A psalmist is the person that uses the psalter. But I wondered whether there's a, you know, in this future world, there is a person who is a psalter who's like a living book mm-hmm. and he kind of is like part reporter, part historian, uh, part computer database. Sort and he commits an almost great traps to memory. Yeah. And like a bard, like a yeah. bard. Yes. I love that um, idea. That's a really good idea, actually. And I think even if it is a typo, it should stay in. The idea of a psalter mm. being a living book. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah, I love that idea, actually. Well, we... if I ever get to uh, play a campaign that you run, then maybe that's what I'll that's, oh, that's okay. the yeah, yeah. I'll take on. Or maybe after Yafet's dead, after the next scenario, I should roll one up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> cool. Or in prison forever. Yeah, but it's a lovely idea. No. Cool. But talking of campaigns that you're running, I've got some exciting news. Have you started your campaign? Yes, I have. Hey. And I have to say, the first scenario went really well. This is... This is kind of actually going to be, I think I'll start off with, 
saying that this this discussion is going to be a little bit of a review of the dying ship scenario. I'll try okay. and keep it as spoiler free as possible. Um, but actually playing, I mean, I played the quick start adventure quite early on. Um, but it reminds me some of the advantages of actually playing a pre-written scenario. Now, I know you much prefer to do everything yourself, although yeah. you know, you'll use the world that's been created. Yep. But you haven't run anything, as far as I'm aware, in our Simbaroom campaign that has actually been published as an adventure nope. for Simbaroom. Nope. The only thing I've, I've done in uh, recent years has been that uh, episode one from Tales of the Loop that I ran. Other than, mm. other than that, I haven't run a pre-written scenario in probably 30 years. And I, so can I ask, kind of, what are your objections to running pre-written scenarios? Um, I, I get, I guess, uh, I, I might not always ag- agree with the direction of the scenario. Maybe I'm, I, I'm thinking about it. I'm not sure what my objections are because obviously. If I take a pre-written scenario and I don't like a bit of it, I can just change it. So I mean, you know, there's not really a, a biggie, uh, you know, in there. Um, I don't know. I think part of for me, part of the joy of being a GM is the creative process of actually creating the story. And by yeah, playing yeah. a pre-written scenario, that bit's taken away. So I think maybe that's why yeah, I, I actually so. I actually really enjoy the the, the act of creating. Rather than just the react, the act of recreating somebody else's creation, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I think that could be part of why I'm kind of reluctant to run pre-written scenarios myself. But I think the other thing, particularly for you and I of that generation, that maybe experienced a whole bunch of really badly written pre-written scenarios in the early <laughs> days of gaming. Yeah, ones that kind of insisted that the players did everything in a particular order and it was really difficult to work out what happened if they did something out of that order. Yeah. Um, and particularly even, you know, even if you weren't running them, if you were playing one that somebody else was running and then they just put up these like invisible walls when you wanted to turn left instead of right because you couldn't turn left until you'd done the thing on the right. A bit like yeah. in a video game where uh, there's a pile of rubbish that stops, you know, stops you crossing over a path until you've done the other thing. And yeah. You come back to the same spot, that pile of rubbish has disappeared. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, I well, recently I've been playing a lot more pre-written scenarios just because I haven't got time to wing stuff myself. And, um, well, now I'm always winging stuff, actually, but I haven't got time to pre-prepare stuff. Yeah. So I've, I've done a lot more, but actually this one I I really enjoyed running, uh, partly because it was very free form. It kind of said, you know, here are the things in the various locations. Here's a bunch of stuff that could happen. Obviously, don't push your team one way or the other. Respond to them. And um, so it was written in a very free form format. Yeah. But the other interesting thing is it, I think it gives me a bit of an insight into what the creators of the game imagine, not what, in, in how the creators of the game imagine you might actually play the set of rules that they'd given you earlier on. So for me, one of the big insights for this one was with all the cool things that could happen, every one of those had a darkness point cost. So it was almost saying, 
you know, choose these cool things. Have them happen whenever you want, as long as you, the GM, can pay with a darkness point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the scenarios I've been creating, the darkness points have I've been um, using particularly for extra challenges so that the elements of the story that have been in there, they've just happened whether or not I've got any darkness points. And I just thought, oh, you know, that's an interesting philosophy to take in because, you know, we talked in the last game that we played of me having too many darkness points, me creating a whole bunch of extra challenge for you, and then you giving me darkness points as you try to defeat the extra challenge. Yeah. And maybe, maybe if it had been tossing darkness points back into the thing whenever anything happened, uh, in, you know, of all the things that I'd kind of created in the story, that might that situation might not have arisen. Yeah. So I it think, was a good lesson. Yeah. I've got a couple of comments on that. I think, firstly... Uh, I, I, as a GM, I feel, uh, I feel a, it's a bit restrictive to say, as a GM, you know, who is creating this game for the pleasure of the players, I can only do stuff if I've got a darkness point to spend on it, because that, in theory, would bring you to a position where there's something really cool to do, which would really enhance the pleasure of the game. But then, if you followed that rule and you didn't have a darkness point to spend, then you wouldn't be able to do it, and I think that's wrong. Um, the second thing with that is quite a lot of the people that we talk to on the forums and the like uh, say that their players, or if they are players, they're really, really cautious about giving out darkness points to the GM. And some of them say that they try not to give any at all. And so if you get a group of players who are really cautious, you might end up with very few darkness points. And if you're following that spend a darkness point to do anything rule as a GM, what you're doing is kind of hamstringing your scenario a little bit and you run the risk of playing out a really boring, cautious scenario. So I, you know, I can yeah, see well how it that, can work. Maybe that, that could be a risk, but I have to say the party I'm playing with were raining darkness points upon <laughs> Yeah. I, they I, weren't I, nervous. No, I think there's probably a, a, a broader point here to think about, which, which is as a GM, you should... You know, sort of um, hone your darkness point use based on your players. Uh, you know how how frequently they're going to give you darkness points. So if they're chucking yeah. darkness points at you, then maybe you should be spending them more for for lower threshold stuff to just to burn them. Because I think the thing that I found with that last game that we played, as great fun as it was, I it felt like that we were in a bit of a feedback loop that as players we could never win. Because no, absolutely, yes. We you, would, we would because, have to because I was determined to spend my darkness points to deal with you were to deal with what you were setting us. Yeah, yes, um, and that meant that you had more darkness points to up the ante. So we had to spend even more to survive that. And each time we're getting chipped away. So I think it's um, uh, you know, the, the darkness point mechanism as a whole, I love, but I think it does require a bit of careful management by the GM. Yeah. 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 So anyway, cool. I'm going to be spending more darkness points on stuff that I might not previously have sp- uh, in the, the stuff that I might have done without spending darkness points. I, yeah. I think for both my groups, because you, you both of you seem to give me plenty of darkness points, so uh, mm. that's not a problem. But if I, I find other... if I find a very timid group that withhold the darkness points, then then in a way, I guess they fail their roles more, and you make stuff happen out of their failed roles. 
Yes. Because let's face it, they shouldn't be rolling unless something interesting could happen out of failure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's so, a good point. Yeah. And the other thing I think that I, I did, I tended to do more of in the early parts of my campaign, I've kind of forgotten to do it more recently, is spending darkness points for points of narrative colour or things that are just a mm. bit fun. So, for example, yeah. when I when I made the ship um, open the airlock on the Zelosian prisoner they had after they decided to spare him, I used darkness for points to do that. And it was a nice touch. And the players, you know, it gave a nice element to the story. And there was a couple of other things that I did that was similar. And I, I as the pace of the scenarios and as the pace of the campaign built up towards the end, I did less of that. Not consciously, it just happened that way. And I think that's a mistake, so I should try and focus on making sure that I take opportunities that come up in the game to add a bit of colour by spending a darkness point or two. Well, in a way, that's a lot of what the scenario had as cool things that could happen are exactly that sort of colour bits. So at yeah. one point, the, the artificial gravity fails, so it doesn't fail. I think, um, uh, without giving too much away, somebody turns it off without even knowing that it's going to affect the players in any sort of way. Uh, for various reasons of their own, and suddenly everybody's floating. Just, yeah. just to, you know, and this was a kind of haunted ship scenario without giving too much away. <laughs> so, you know, things happening like that, not only kind of inexplicably, but actually explained by the fact that you're, you, the GM, are putting a darkness point back in the pot, makes them a bit, feel a bit spooked. So, yeah. yeah. So I think that colour thing is what a lot of it's about, as opposed yeah. to big plot developments. I mean, big plot developments as well sometimes, and maybe they're worth three, whereas the colour thing's only worth one. But um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, it was great doing that. I recommend the scenario to, to everybody. It was written in a very freeform style, so uh, in, you didn't expect... Well, I think in a way, maybe they were expecting... Uh, players to start at one end of the ship and work their way to another end of the ship. But there was no restriction on that. You know, didn't say, well, if they start at the wrong end of the ship or in the middle of the ship or wherever, um, stop them. Do anything you can to stop them. You've got to start at the, the other end of the ship. Yeah. None of that was there. And it was written in a freeform way that even though I think that my players didn't do what was expected of them. I know they didn't do what was expected of them because they came up with a really interesting solution for one of the problems that definitely wasn't written about at all. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, cool. So, yeah, it was it was a good one to freeform around. But my players, let me tell you about my players. Earlier on, I think in the last thing I mentioned that they had got it into their heads that they wanted to be... Um, adherents of the Nazarene sacrifice. Let me rewind a bit. We also talked in the last um, in the last episode about uh, the character generation process and, you know, not necessarily filling out your problems and your relationships right at the beginning. And I took that advice and said, we're not going to do this. Just do your stats to begin with. At the end of the first scenario, we'll see where you stand with with problems and things like that. Particularly because, of course, there isn't much background to give them about the Nazarene sacrifice. They're going to be making that up as they go along. We wanted to have a ship that was of the Nazarene sacrifice. So we created this idea of uh, a reliquary ship. Uh, traditionally, you burn dead bodies in the horizon. But it says somewhere that saints 
are often preserved and their bones are preserved in chapels and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of went with the Mormon <clears throat> idea for the Nazarene sacrifice that all adherents of the Nazarene sacrifice are saints. Therefore, they're not burned. It's not traditional to cremate them. Instead, you put their body on a ship and it sails in the darkness between the stars forever. Huh. And so there were, there were, in the Nazarene sacrifice, a bunch of ships going around full of dead bodies. <laughs> Most of them were destroyed by the legion when uh, of the Nazarene sacrifice got taken down. But for yeah, some reason, yeah. this ship has been preserved in some way and has kind of disguised itself as a pilgrim ship of the Church of the Icons, but is actually still chock full of dead bodies. <laughs> and it's got a cadaver clock in it and um, stuff like that. Cool. But we don't know what the cadaver clock does yet. We just know it's there. And I thought at huh? some point, hopefully, um, there'll be a, a reason for having a cadaver clock, some some part of the ship they haven't discovered yet. So I left everything quite freeform. Um, and uh, we've got a preacher, we've got a, a science archaeologist, we've got a soldier, we've got a pilot who isn't part of the Nazarene sacrifice and is just a pilot for hire. Who, who doesn't know what's going on on her ship. Um, <laughs> Hasn't we, bumped a, into a the uh, cadavers yet, then. Yeah. Well, the, the, the cadaver clock is hidden behind the dancer icon in the what otherwise looks like a perfectly ordinary modern chapel, okay. which is actually a disguise. So I've kind of combined a second chapel with a smuggler's stash, and right. you do something to the, uh, to the dancer icon, and it leads you through into the second chapel with a cadaver clock in it. Presumably, uh, your player who is playing the pilot knows know knows all the background. She knows what she doesn't know. Yes, but as a character, yeah, we, doesn't. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. So every broadly speaking, I think everybody else was going, "Oh, oh, let's be Nazarene sacrifice," and she was kind of going, "I'm not sure I want to be." Um, but, uh, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, wise, wise that, woman. That, yes. <laughs> um, and we've got a new player who's come on as an engineer, but I think he's probably a Nazarene sacrifice sort of guy as well. Right. Uh, anyway, they play through the adventure, and immediately I can see that somebody's got a problem that's going to be a great problem to play, in that he was possessed by a djinn as part of the scenario. Right. Um, again, this is this is this is a, a great example of of uh, having to work around a. The, the player's improvisations. So there was a character being possessed by a djinn. They were meant to discover that over time and basically try and capture the djinn and exercise him or whatever. Yeah. Um, but this particular character knifed the guy in the throat for no reason at all, okay. killing him. And I thought, hmm, how do I react to this one? Well, obviously, the djinn needs a new host. And so... Uh, <laughs> So this guy's now got this gin possession, which he's very happy with. And that will obviously, huh. the, you know, the best way to w- work that out is not to possess him, but, well, is to possess him, but um, to just say, that's your problem. You're possessed by this gin. But in terms of taking mm. the character over or whatever and having him as a bad guy, I said, you know, I, I'm going to give you some motivations or the, I'm going to tell you what the gin's motivations are, but you're playing your own character Every now and then, though, I'm going to pay a couple of darkness points and I'm going to activate your problem. And yeah. you might act differently when I do. Um, uh-huh. It's a good idea. And also, I like, I like there's all that. sorts yeah. of there's symptoms of gin possession. So it might just be that he doesn't have a night's sleep because he's got weird nightmares. <laughs> a couple of darkness points. Um, yeah. 
So I'm very pleased with that. I'm very pleased with how that's working out. Nice. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's pretty much my campaign report. Not as full necessary as yours, but, um, no, but yeah, I'm brilliant. just very excited by it. Excellent. Sounds good. I look forward to hearing more about uh, about your possessed Nazarene sacrifice guy and about the moment when your pilot stumbles across the secret door. That ought to be entertaining. Yes, yes. <laughs> and of course, I think it has to be said, though, it does feel a little bit like, you know, when they come up and knife one of the NPCs without actually having even spoken with him. Um, so why did he it knife does him, make you feel... Was he just I being a psycho? That he's just a bit of a psycho from the Nazarene sacrifice. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, I, I think I think they might be reading um act like you're chaotic evil and also act like as a player you're about twelve or thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> um so I'm gonna have yeah. to get around that. Yeah. Oh, we're finding a similar thing in the Star Trek campaign that we've got because the guys still aren't really role-playing it like Starfleet in the last game. <sighs> Dean, Dean, who's the chief medical officer, was about to torture one of our captives to get information out of him. <laughs> uh, and, right, and, when yeah. I, and when I said no, he said, well, I'm not really going to torture him. I'm just going to pretend I'm going to. I said, no, that, that's not acceptable either. Like, that's oh. not what Starfleet does. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> Oh, so yeah, that's good though because you are captain, so that is yeah. your role to say no, don't torture the bloke. <laughs> I know, but uh, you know, I've watched a lot of Star Trek episodes now, and at no point did you ever get Will Riker saying, "Captain, I'm going to talk to this guy to get information out of him," and have Picard say, "Hmm, bad idea, number one." Uh, hmm. Have you watched any Star Trek Discovery yet? Yeah, I've seen all of the first series. Yeah, yes, yes, you have. Well, isn't there a little bit of shall we torture these people? Is there? Well, mm. I think I think the captain, the, the sure. Jeremy Iron, not Jeremy Irons character. What's his name? Jeremy um, Isaacs. Character. Jeremy Isaacs character. Yeah. I think there's some evidence there that he might have done some torturing. Yeah, but there there's a reason for that, which we probably yes. don't want to say <laughs> if anybody hasn't watched it. There's a huge spoiler going on, uh, which is probably <laughs> probably blown it already. Uh, Anyway, um, moving swiftly on then. So um, let's move no, swiftly on. Really good to hear about that. Look, look forward to hearing more. Um, so in my campaign, we have a uh, Nakatra character uh, who was an NPC originally. And then when Valdez died, uh, Connor chose to take on the mantle of this NPC uh, with my agreement. And um, that's led me to think a little bit about Nakatra as a species in Coriolis. The three semi-intelligent species in Coriolis offer an interesting tangent from the human and supernatural side of the game, both as intriguing and dangerous adversaries and as potential player characters. Where did they come from? Are they, in fact, separately evolved species? Or were they genetically engineered by the Legion or some other faction? Or did they come to the Third Horizon aboard the Zenith? Or perhaps they were created by the Icons for the sport of their followers? I remember the first time I reached the page about the so-called semi-intelligent species of the Third Horizon. I almost dismissed the Nakatra with a little tut and a roll of my eyes. <laughs> Wolfmen? Really? I mean, at first, I wasn't even taken by the idea of semi-intelligent species at all. It was a bit like having weird alien races, such as the Varga in Megatraveller, 
which I hadn't been a big fan of, and always seemed to me to be ripping off Chewbacca and the Wookiees. But I was sure I'd read somewhere that having weird alien races wasn't something that happened in Coriolis. Although maybe that was an interview with Joss Whedon talking about Firefly. But either way, having the Nicatra, Scavara, and Equilibri in the game immediately seemed to break that unwritten undertaking. No knobbly-headed aliens in Coriolis, thank you very much. But in my campaign, I've had NPC Scavara, minions of the Zalusian witch-smellers, as well as an NPC and then a PC Nicatra. In the game, they don't feel like knobbly-headed aliens, and they fit well into their own particular niches within the game. Admittedly, these can feel a little stereotypical. The Scavara are small and rat-like, feeding off rubbish and scurrying around the edges of human society. As the great Foundation scholar Galabar Redaishan once said, You may not know it, but you are never more than ten feet away from a thieving little Scavara. The Equilibri are cute, lemur-like creatures, agile and easily trained as pets, and the Nakatra, beastly hunters that rage and kill, that are harnessed by humans to fight, either in the arenas of the horizon or on the Legion's battlefields. So where did these species come from? As with so much of the Coriolis canon, it's up to us as GMs and players to decide. The book does offer a suggestion that the Nakatra were bioengineered from scratch by the Legion, but that doesn't feel right to me. Wild Nakatra live on Kua, on Menkar, and on the forest moons of Uharu, not Endor. And no, we're not going to start talking about Ewoks here. It seems a bit of a stretch to think that the Legion, that's only been in operation across the horizon for 60 years, would be able to both design and create a full-blown species in that time, and then seed these systems with them. And why would the Legion seed these planets in the first place? We know they modify some Nakatra, turning them into the so-called Legion Nakatra, more on that in a moment. But what would the Legion's motivation be to create a species, presumably for their own military purposes, and then let them go free? You could argue that some escaped to start Nakatra colonies, but again, it's a bit of a stretch to think this happened three times. And surely, if the Legion had been responsible for creating a species of warrior werewolves, they might have wanted to keep it a secret and might have been strongly motivated to hunt down any escapees in double-quick time. So I'm not a fan of that. In my campaign, the origins of my Nakatra, as well as those of the other semi-intelligences, are shrouded in mystery, and anyone who bothers to take the time to think about it probably ascribes their existence to the wonders or the mischief of the icons. But now let's take a closer look at Nakatra themselves. The details are on page 317 of the main book. They are combat machines, even before the Legion goes and upgrades them even further, when they become mega-combat machines. With strength of 6 and agility of 5, and thus a hit point total of 11, they are going to outmuscle every human they come across, helped by their melee combat of 3. Added to this, they have two combat abilities. First, the throat attack. A vicious strike that reduces the Nakatra's crit rating from 2 to 1, and lets the Nakatra grapple its opponent if successful. And Feral Hunger, a frenzy that doubles the number of attacks that can be made, but leaves the Nakatra open and defenceless, other than the obvious attack being the best defence option. Beyond that, the Legion went and made some impressive modifications to build their version of a Nakatra soldier. 
Bioengineering and Bionics give these Legion Nicatra an additional 10, yes, 10 hit points, for a standard total of 21, and an increased damage from their bite attack to weapon damage of 4. They also have implanted Mediglans, that secrete a hormone that allows the Nicatra to rise again once broken. And if that isn't enough, the Legion then went and added a range of standard cybernetic implants. Phew! When I introduced Nicatra into my campaign, it was in episode 6, The Call of a Ghostly Choir, and they were not immediately antagonists. They could have become that, but it depended on the way the crew played out the situation. In the end, the crew rescued the three Nicatra, and they became friendly but distant NPCs as the campaign rolled on. This worked out well. I'd wanted to bring the Nicatra into the game, but didn't want it to be an immediate fight. As we've seen, Nicatra are deadly, and especially those modified by the Legion. If they have a weakness, it's in their lack of a ranged attack. There's nothing in the book that specifically states that Nicatra can't use guns, but their stats don't include a ranged combat skill as standard, and I've taken this to mean that they have a distaste of, or maybe a phobia-like reaction to, using guns. I'm delighted to say that Connor, one of my players who now plays an ex-Legion Nicatra, came up with this thought too, and plays his character, Norsa, in that way. So how about having a Nicatra, and a Legion Nicatra at that, as a player character? Well, it does bring a number of issues. When Connor's original character, Captain Leo Valdez, was killed, we obviously had the need to generate a new one. This had the added wrinkle that the crew were now halfway across the horizon from their starting point, and creating a backstory that introduced the new character in a satisfying way was going to present a few challenges. So I suggested that Connor consider stepping into the shoes of a friendly NPC, and he chose Norsa, the Nicatra they'd rescued, and who, since then, had built a relationship with Valdez. Indeed, Valdez had agreed to sponsor Norsa as he tried to build a career as a gladiator. I can hear you all thinking, Ouch! A Legion Nicatra as a player character? How OP is that? I certainly thought it, and Connor wasn't blind to the possibilities. Having a PC as a fully operational Legion Nicatra, or any other exceedingly powerful character, is always a challenge for the GM. You don't want one character being the solution to every problem. You don't want to have to up the ante just to cater for the OP character and have the others either slaughtered or too terrified to poke their head out when the fighting starts. So it was clear to me that Norsa would have to suffer some setbacks before he became a player character. His first fight in the arena didn't work out as he wanted. His opponent, terrified for his life but too brash and macho to say it, conspired to have Norsa poisoned before the bout. Norsa was defeated, badly beaten, severely weakened and ravaged by the poison. He crawled back to the only safety he knew, that of his friends on the Spectral Corsair, and Connor's new character was born. Even after he'd been nerfed, Norse is still a combat character to reckon with. He's hard to put down, although crits are crits, and the weediest enemy might put you down for good. And he still has the ability to mount a throat attack, a move that's proved devastating on a couple of occasions. But it's also allowed for some interesting role-playing. Norza has a total aversion to ranged weapons and won't use them. He rebels against the bloodlust he feels, desperately trying to tame his beastly ancestry, but sometimes he can't overcome it. And he's a Legion Nicatra who fled the Legion, but who has now been unwillingly drawn back under their control. For me as a GM, it means I have to be even more careful about how I craft the situations for the crew to face. 
But this isn't a new problem for me, or any other GM. My crew already has the best sniper in the Third Horizon. A cybernetic soldier and engineering and techie skills way up the scale. Bringing a beaten up old Nicatra onto the crew has just added spice to an already heady mix. Well, that was really interesting. Um, I really like your take on that. I've got a couple of questions. Um, I, I would expect to nothing To start less. off with, <laughs> uh, there's a thing I want to talk about in a bit, but to start off with, um, uh, I wanted to check what you mean by OP. What is the <laughs> o- strange term? OP. You're doing a study into that involves lots of computer games and you don't know what OP stands for? Overpowered. I don't know. Overpowered. Overpowered. Right. Surely Tom um, would have told you that as well. I mean, come on. Yeah, well, Tom Tom is at school. He's on a school camp at the moment, so I didn't have okay. him to refer to when I listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so do you know okay, what nerfing and there's another question means? there. Do you know what nerfing I means? I do know what nerfing right, means. Okay. I, I I am nerfed. I mean, no, I uh, I know what nerfing means. If now, you were nerfed, uh, it would mean that you were OP at some point, and that's never been the case. Uh, now, I haven't looked through the book, but there's something else you say that raised my interest, which was uh, you mentioned that there's a, an idea that Nakatra were actually entirely invented by the Legion. Yes. And I was just looking at the Nakatra um, item in the in the handbook because I wanted to uh, for the discussion I want to have in a little while um, and I looked at that and it says very clearly uh, uh, where the Nakatra are from originally is unclear as they seem to have been living in several different systems when the horizon was colonised which is a thousand years ago long before the Legion so where's that idea come from that they might have invented them? So there is a throwaway line. Um, there's a discussion um, about humanites on page 223 and 224. And at the end of that, uh, they're talking about um, humanites being like animals. And then there's a final sentence which says, Rumours claim that the Nakatra are actually the result of the Legion experimenting with lupine biocode. Uh, so ah. it, it's one of those where... I mean. It is consistent with what the book is saying because it's a rumour. So obviously somebody somewhere is talking about it in that way, even though I think, as I said, for me, that uh, I don't think that rumour holds any water. And in my campaign, it doesn't. Um, But in another person's campaign, it might well do. Um, Yeah, that is the beauty of the way this book is written. Exactly. exactly. Uh, Okay, so that's done. So this is great. And you you talked a bit about how... how, um, your captain character turned into a Nakatra character, well, died. And <laughs> yes. It took on the Nakatra character. And then how you realised how much you had to nerf him. And of yeah. course, that made me think about, well, obviously, the Nakatra as written in the monsters section of the book, Beasts and Jin, is meant to be a threat to players. So is a bit OP'd because there's going to be five players who are playing tactically and you're the GM and... Basically, you need a lot of power to um, to match their tactical play. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a really overpowered one. It made me think, though, and you'd of course already created that character, and then you had to nerf him to turn him into a player character. Yes. It made me think about what rules would you give somebody who said, "I want to play in a catcher from scratch." Um. 
how would they generate an Akatra character? It's a good question. I think uh, so. I think the Nakatra is a really interesting species to play for a, for a player, but it is quite one-dimensional. But in that dimension, it's very very powerful. Um, so maybe I think you'd want to do try and do something that was a little bit broader than just um, straight out of the book. So maybe you could uh, you could have them start with a juvenile so it could be a teenage mm. nakatra um well that's one of the things i was thinking the reason i uh read that bit out about the nakatra's origins is because i was looking up the nakatra character but actually i wasn't looking at that i was looking up the thing over the other page on 318 where having promised early on in the character generation of the book that further on there would be some more stuff about playing semi-intelligences as PCs, there is just a box out on 318 that talks yeah. about semi-intelligences as PCs. And it says some interesting stuff. You know, like uh, Scavara are pretty decent, pretty deft negotiators, but can also learn enough technical technical skills to work as deckhands, and they can use both tools and firearms, which kind of implies, since they're mentioned as people that can use tools and firearms, the other two semi-intelligences, including in the catcher, they can't use firearms. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought that was interesting. But actually, there's not there's nothing for a player to go on here about, well, how do I do it? No. What well, are... The, well, the, the terms. And yeah, really. The only line, the only line you got there about Nakatra in particular is it just says they're best suited for violent professions such as soldier or scout. Well, you know, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, you know, all you got to do is look at the stats. Hmm, I think he's going to play, a, a, I don't know, a priest or a taxi driver or something. Yeah, so, so if we look at the stats there, I just want to go to the stats in the stat block they've got in there for the Nakatra as monster. Yeah, and we're talking about strength six, which is already impossible for a PC to get because for a human to get, if you start normally, you're only allowed to have five, five if you're generating a PC. Uh, agility five, wits two, empathy two. So we've got there fifteen points to that somebody has spent on attributes, and I seem to remember, and it's going to look this up, but I think fourteen points is the maximum number of points that you get if you're a oh no you can get 15 points as a plebeian yeah so so you could actually if if you had the rule that said well the catra can have strength six if they so choose then you can actually spend those points and get yes. those sorts of stats so so with connor when he was rolling up his player version of norsa um i allowed him to have strength six his mm -hmm. he had the same number of points. We had fifteen points to spend. He placed an extra one on empathy and took one off agility, which I think was I can't remember whether we had a discussion about it or whether he just chose to do that. But that's a good thing, yeah. I think, because yes. um, having him, you know, he needed to be a bit nerfed. He um, his skills are obviously a little bit different, um, and there is other stuff going on that will probably come out in future scenarios uh, you know sort of like the legacy of his poisoning um, which haven't really taken effect yet uh, but mm. he, he he kept some of his Legion Nicactra stuff but he lost a lot of it as well um, yeah so uh, it, it was kind of a bit of a mashup really it was it was more about us discussing what was acceptable uh, rather than 
trying to hook it into a player character generation process. No, well, I mean, I just, obviously, I understand that, but I'm just thinking, you know, whether it's it's got me thinking about what pl- player character generation would be. Yeah, and then I'm thinking about those things like throat attack, feral hunger, and all the things you get when you're a legion the catcher. Well, obviously, the way to think about those are talents, be they cyber talents for the legion things or not. And I was thinking, if you're starting one from scratch. Then your own, you may have some to choose from, but you're only going to get one of those. Mm. You know, so you're yes. not, you know, you so, either choose, say, a throat attack, which gives you a bonus, uh, or you choose one of the things that a legion the catcher has. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm still struggling about how you'd have a talent that gives you ten extra hit points. But um, <laughs> yeah, I know. So what? So what have what have so what I, what I've done with Connor? is again similarly he wasn't allowed all of that he he chose to take the throat attack um he kept uh, as legion nakatra he he didn't get the stronger bite attack now i wonder actually as a quite quick digression on the page here um and as i mentioned in the piece the weapon damage for the teeth goes up to 4 from mm-hmm. 1 for a legion nakatra that's huge i wonder if that's a type it is and it should be a 2 rather than a 4 Anyway, Connors hasn't changed, so Norsa, his bite attack damage remains the same. Um, I gave him the. It, I let him have the. It remains one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I let him keep the the medi glands, um, but he didn't get any of the rest of it. So, uh, and he didn't get full hunger either. He wasn't allowed that. So a bit of a kind of a bit of a mix to try and give him the feel and the kind of excitement of playing in a catcher, um, but without making him. So so enormously overpowered that uh, uh, you know it, it completely sort of skews the balance of any 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 combat that we have. Yeah. As I said in the piece, so just though, one again, other question then. Yeah, go on. Uh, the the monster in the catra has basically spent uh, three to to seven skill points. How many skill points did you let? Um, uh, did you let your player character? Nakatra have. Um, well, I, I allowed him to have ten, as as per normal, um, and also I, uh, with in terms of talents, he didn't get a icon talent. I, from your discussion earlier, from the discussion earlier, I wonder whether that's the right decision actually, because do they or mm. do they not have souls? Mm. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yes. good good question. Um, Norsa, on the basis of having an no icon hold talent. Hold on, hold on. You said he got the normal 10. Yeah. If he was a plebeian, he should have 15 attributes and only 8 skill points. Uh, okay, maybe I was generous then. Cause he I think you were a bit generous there. Possibly, because okay. I mean, he wasn't the starting character, because Norsa was supposed yeah. to have been an experienced Legion Nakatra, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, who's just been nerfed a bit. Um but I didn't allow him to have the full... He didn't get the Legion hit points, but he did take um, Tough as a talent, so he got a bonus on his hit points anyway. So, he, right, um, yes. so yeah, I mean, he's worked out quite well in that sense. Um, but yeah, I allowed him to have 10, 10 skill points, potentially, as you say, a couple more because didn't want him in other areas to be necessarily a long way behind some of the other players. But, oh, did I? No, actually, hang on. 
I'm thinking about this. Maybe I did only let him have eight. And he's just bought a couple of skills with experience just, points since. Um, I, I think it is probably ten. Anyway, I don't know. But either eight or ten. So I've either been a bit well, generous. I'm not saying or... you were, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not accusing you of being over generous. I'm just thinking <laughs> about, again, what can we learn from this about yeah. creating and the capture character? I think there's very much a cool. thing about being mindful of how a character that could be exceedingly powerful, whether it's a Nakatra or anything else, um, how that would influence the balance of your game. I think that's the key yeah. thing to bear in mind. Cool. Yeah. Well, talking of balance of the game, have you had any adventures we recently have. that you want to share? We have. We had have had another one. Um, and interestingly, um, having had our conversation about how OP the uh, the Norser is and the Nekatra overpowered, is, he um, yes, he was almost well killed OP. in the last scenario. Oh. So, um, so it was a bit UP. It turned out. <laughs> well, he got shot in the arm with a crit that uh, <laughs> that would have killed him, and the critical roll, the rolls to save him, um, they only got one success. It's a partial success. And I spent some darkness points to say that to save his life, they had to amputate the arm. So he's now only got one arm again. So oh, Connor's wow. characters seem to lose limbs at rapid he, rate. He just so, can't have four limbs. <laughs> he can't bear a character no. with four limbs. No, no. I think it possibly says more about Connor's slightly gung-ho approach, certainly with Norsa as a character. Um, but anyway, so people may remember that uh, the, the crew of the Spectral Corsa were on... Coriolis station and they were working against the Zalusians for the Legion and their job had been to investigate the uh, the, the Zalusian people who were working from the Samaritan Sanatorium on Coriolis mm-hmm. and they'd investigated I one fellow that. a brother, Brother Asculum, and they'd determined that he was uh, doing nothing nefarious um, they then decided to investigate Sister Mariam who would travel every day down to the cellar on Coriolis Station with some bodyguards and do good works down there. Sometimes come back with those men, sometimes not. Um, so they decided to, to follow her and um, investigate what she was doing. So they spent quite a long time trying to work out how they get down to the cellar. And there is a lift from the core, which is controlled by the Legion. And rather than have them just go, we're working for the Legion, let us through, uh, I made them make... Um, roles to convince the guard who was on duty that they were worthy of being let through and that ended up in about an hour's worth of role playing of them screwing it up and then having to talk to his superior and then having to make threats and then Morgan having to go to the local legion station to convince them they were who they said they were uh, so that took ages but eventually they um, they got permission to go down to the cellar and um, set up followed Sister Mariam as she came out Follow her down uh, into the uh, into the depths of the station, and I kind of imagined the cellar as um, I don't know, just like the darkest streets of you know Blade Runner or or something similar to that, but a bit like a a, a kind of permanent underground railway station feel, where you've got stairwells going down, stairwells going up corridors going in all sorts of directions you've got multiple levels so it's a complete sort of mess of corridors and and uh, uh and that kind of thing uh, so that was quite interesting having them trying to follow uh sister mariam 
And eventually she came to a stop and had a meeting with some, uh, a group of three other people. And this all looked a bit hooky. They were thinking that she was probably up to no good. They were starting to set themselves up in a position to observe all of this when Norsa, who was a bit annoyed about the fact he'd been told to stay on mission and wasn't allowed to go to the um, uh, the the casino and the cantina that's down there. Um, he was a bit annoyed about that. He wanted to go and play some games. He decided to just go and challenge these people, uh, which, which he did. And inevitably, he didn't back down. So that was when he was shot. One of them shot him in the arm. The rest of them hadn't revealed themselves at that moment. Uh, in the... Uh, the, the chaos that ensued. Sister Mariam and her two bodyguards started to just, just they just fled, they ran away. Uh, Hanbaland and Fenwick, in quite a sensible little move, which didn't really work, but it's a really good idea, ran after her going, sister, sister, we'll protect you, we'll help you, don't worry. Uh, that didn't really um, work, they didn't make their roles sufficiently well, but they were able to run with her, fleeing the, the scene of what was becoming a bit of a fight. Having put the Norsa down, the three, these three men, they didn't have the faintest idea who they were at that moment, just left in another direction, quite relaxed, not, no, not worried about what happened. Obviously, this is a cellar. It's a, it's a place rife with crime, yeah. so violence happens yeah. regularly. There isn't a police force particularly who's going to do anything down there. Um, they had been no. warned by the Legion that they would be on their own. Um, if they went into the cellar, they wouldn't be, uh, you know, there wouldn't be a rescue waiting for them. Um, so Ajit decided to follow these three guys screwed up on his roles unfortunately they then um, shot at him uh, to, to ward him off he then fled they then followed him and he managed to kill two of them and put the third one down with three quick shots from his sniper rifle now he's as good a sniper as you're going to get He's probably the best sniper in the horizon. So he succeeded in doing that. Uh, he had a mysterious stranger come up to him afterwards and slip him a business card saying, if you ever need work, give me a call. Um, which cool. uh, like which I should just line up for later. That was just an off-the-cuff moment thought. Okay, you know, maybe this is an opportunity yes. to just throw another line of, of, of story uh, into it. Um, they managed to save... Norse's life, just. As I said, their role was only one success, so I ruled with a couple of darkness points that they had to amputate the arm to save his life. Um, they then all fled back to um, to the lift to go back up. All of them trying to go with Sister Mariam and her, her two bodyguards. She was trying to distance herself from them, but they weren't, they weren't allowing her to, and she wasn't causing a fuss. But remember, by this point, they still had no evidence that she was up to no good. She was talking to these three men who were obviously able to look after themselves and were armed. But down in the cellar, that might not be such an unusual thing for someone to do. So as they were coming up in the lift, Osgar decided to try and read her mind. And as she stepped off the lift, uh, he got a return blast of mystic mental energy, which meant he couldn't read her mind at all. She defended against it. The one thing he did know clearly as the scenario came to a close was that she was a witch smeller. And so they'd obviously found somebody uh, that they're looking for. But at that moment, they were in the public areas of the core. There was nothing they could do. She disappeared off into the crowd with her uh, with her bodyguards. Now knowing that at least Osgar 
knows who she is. Uh, and Osgar and the crew now knowing that she knows that they know who she is. And that was the end of the scenario. Um, next time they've got to decide what they're going to do. I don't know what... That wasn't quite how I planned that scenario to come out. Um, <laughs> immediately uh, challenging them wasn't an option I'd really deeply considered as one they would take. But that's the way it happened. So we'll see what happens next time. But uh, yeah. yeah, it was good. Uh, so was our good. players do rush in with their weapons drawn, don't they? Mm. Uh. <laughs> yeah, even even after numerous examples of fighting being very, very, very bad for you, <laughs> they still yeah. They still I was reminded it. of uh, uh, an incident that happened in this adventure where there is a um, a cowardly mechanic that they they discover who's armoured with a tool, only, you know, some sort of tool that you can vaguely use as a weapon, sort of projectile weapon. And our soldier, who is pretty damn mean, um, I can't quite remember why he failed to, you know, put the, the guy out of action straight away, but for some reason he did. The guy got a shot off and scored a crit, crashing the soldier's face and knocking him out for two hours. Um... <laughs> In yeah, forty-five. That was. Uh, so I, I hope that both both our parties are learning how deadly combat can be, even against weedy weedy characters exactly. who aren't combat trained. Yeah, um, one bullet, one lucky roll, one dodgy D sixty-six yeah. roll, and it's game over. Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I think we've probably blabbered on again for longer than we intended yes we try and keep them short but this looks like i don't know an hour and a half something like that, um, a bit longer probably i guess what are we going to yeah. talk about next week next time i show uh next time well i we will be getting close to rpg a day at that point won't we but i think we might want to try and get one in well before then. i guess but between now and then there will We'll be lucky to get an episode of this we in will. before RPG a day, won't we? Yeah, I, I think. think I think, I think be... what we're looking at is probably RPG a day as our next set of podcasts. Yes, I think, and then we should plan plan for one uh, a proper one immediately afterwards. I've got a question for you that I thought uh, would be a topic I I know you've expressed an interest in. Okay, and I need to know it. Obviously, my players, because they're essentially chaotic evil, it seems, want yep. to use poison and said to me, what are the poison rules? And uh. all I could remember off the top of my head was, um, well, I know Dave had a real investigation of the poison rules. Um, I, so I, I wondered whether we ought to do a how to play about those those sorts of things, poison, explosions, that sort of stuff. Yes, uh, that sounds like an excellent idea. I uh, mission accepted, Matt. I will do that. And um, yeah, I think poisons and explosions uh, are two areas that are potentially quite similar. But um, I've had to do a bit of thinking about how to make them work really well. So giving me the opportunity to review those rules again and see whether I've got it wrong and run through my my house rule fix um, would be a great idea. Yes. Brilliant. Okay, then. Uh, cool. I think by then as well, we will have uh, our ship fully worked out, the Al Mukhadir. So, <laughs> cool. Our, now, 
Al-Budakir. Al-Budakir. Well, I would, I would settle <laughs> for you just being able to pronounce it first time for next for the next episode. <laughs> so work on that one, perhaps. Well, I, I think we're working on the ship design, so I might, I might finish that by then. So nice. we'll, we'll talk people through that as much as they know. We made that a class four ship, by the way, so that there's plenty for them to explore. Uh, and they might not know, even the guys who know where the secret chapel is, might not know everything that the ship does yet. Interesting. I like. I, I do like that idea for your reliquary ship. I like it very yeah. much. Yeah. It has, it has similar echoes to the ship that I created for the game that I ran at Dragon Meat last year, which I can't remember the Ooh. name of it off the top of my head, which was a... Uh, a um, First Horizon or Second Horizon um, Nazarene Sacrifice ship. Oh, really? Yeah. Maybe we should uh, compare notes then. And uh... that's a that's a good idea. Yeah, let's do that as well. I'll dust off yeah my paperwork from uh, from Dragon Meat and uh, yeah, great idea. Brilliant. Cool. Brilliant. Well done okay us. then. So I think we this one's a wrap though. Um, it is. So we've got very little to say except goodbye from Dave. It's goodbye from me. And, and goodbye it's... from me. And <laughs> it's goodbye from Matt. And may the icons help you get the end of your podcast right in future. There's no <laughs> chance of that happening. <laughs> no. Cool. You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Font Fabric. <laughs>